I'd like to invite us uh, to turn to our text for this morning, which is Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, and if you're following along in the Bibles in the pews, that's on page 754. We are in the third week of a sermon series looking at this book, looking at Jonah. That will take us right on up uh, to the beginning of Lent. And I'll be honest, we've got a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to dive right in here. Jonah chapter 3, and this is what it says. Um, just to tee this up, this is right after Jonah has been vomited back on the dry land by the fish that had saved him after he was thrown overboard. And so this is what the text says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. And then I blanked on the part I had memorized there. <laughs> Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we've said throughout uh, this short series on this book that the book of Jonah has two main themes. Uh, the first we said is God's sovereignty. That's the idea that God rules, reigns, and exercises lordship and control over all things. And we looked at that specifically last week. Then the second theme in this book is evangelism. We talked about that in week one of this series, and that's what we're going to talk about quite a bit more this morning as well. And let's start with a definition. What exactly is evangelism? Well, that word evangelism actually shares the same root in Greek as the word we translate gospel. Uh, in the original Greek, the word for gospel is eungelion. It literally means the good news, which is what we believe that the Christian gospel proclaims, right? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation, the good news about how we as sinful, broken human beings can be reconciled uh, and brought back into relationship with God. So evangelism is simply sharing that good news. It's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing the good news of God's salvation, sharing the good news of redemption and reconciliation with God with the rest of the world. Now the Greek word for someone who does that who shares God's good news like that, is eungelistus. They're an evangelist, 
a messenger, someone who takes the good news of the gospel, of God's salvation, and tells others about it. And that's what God sent Jonah to do in the city of Nineveh. He sent him to be an aeungalistus, an evangelist, to tell the Ninevites news of God. What kind of news of God? What did Jonah say to the Ninevites? What did he tell them about God? What was this news that Jonah brought to Nineveh? Well, as we see in this text, the only news actually that Jonah brings to Nineveh is news of judgment. Forty more days, he says, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the extent of his message. Now, commentators are kind of split on how to take Jonah's message uh, there. Some think that, think that Jonah was actually being pretty faithful to what God wanted him to say in Nineveh. They think that really was the message that God told Jonah to go and preach. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's it. But other commentators uh, who sort of look at Jonah's actions throughout the rest of this book think that maybe there's something else going on here. After all, as we've talked about, Jonah clearly didn't want to go to Nineveh. That's all of chapter one, right? He runs away from God's call on his life. And so once he, he gets there and starts proclaiming his message here in chapter three, some commentators think maybe he leaves a few details out. Maybe he only gave Nineveh half the message. Maybe he gave them all judgment but no grace because yet again he is trying to sabotage God's mission to Nineveh. After all, as verse 3 says, it took three days to go through Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And yet, how many days does Jonah put in? Only one. The very next verse says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah puts in a third of the work, possibly only delivers half the message, all judgment, but no grace and once more appears to be intentionally trying to fail in this mission that God has given him. You see, as we've already talked about, and we'll talk about this more next week too, Jonah doesn't care about Nineveh. He doesn't care about the animals there. He doesn't care about the people. He doesn't care about the city. He only goes because he has to, because God has forced him to, not because he wants to or wants to do a good job. In other words, Jonah's approach to evangelism here leaves a lot to be desired. And my friends, our approach to evangelism these days sometimes leaves a lot to be desired too. Now, full disclosure, I don't necessarily think of myself as a natural evangelist. I wouldn't say it's one of my strengths, uh, one of my natural gifts, uh, something that I feel very comfortable always doing. Uh, in fact, like I said in my first sermon in this series, evangelism used to be an aspect of our faith as Christians that really intimidated me. It was something I didn't really uh, want to do or enjoy doing. Because of that, though, I have made an intentional effort over the years uh, to get better at evangelism. I've read books, listened to podcasts, picked the brains of people who are better at evangelism than me, and as a result, I've come to a few conclusions. First, I've come to some conclusions about what I think are bad assumptions that we as Christians tend to make about evangelism. Uh, but then second, I've come to some conclusions about what I think are good or biblical approaches to evangelism. And so if it's all right with you, and you don't really have a choice anyway, since I have the microphone, um, 
That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this morning. We're going to talk first about the bad assumptions that we make about evangelism. And then second, we're going to talk about some good approaches to evangelism, or at least good approaches to evangelism in today's post-Christian, post-modern, secular culture. So bad assumptions about evangelism, good approaches to evangelism, and then like always, we'll end on the gospel. Okay? So first, bad assumptions we tend to make as Christians when it comes to evangelism. Bad assumption number one, evangelism is for the experts. Uh, You know, scripture makes a bit of a distinction between what it calls our gifts as Christians and our calling as Christians. Christian gifts are the things that some of us are good at, but not all of us. They're things like teaching and preaching, uh, singing and dancing, speaking in tongues and, and working with our hands. There's a bunch of lists of those things, those gifts that God gives us in Scripture. And while none of us have all the gifts, all of us have at least some of the gifts. We all have some of them. So some of us might not be very good at teaching, but we're great singers. Others of us might not be able to sing, but we can build things. And still others of us might not be able to build things, but we're good at at more artistic abilities and using those for the church. Again, none of us have all the gifts, but all of us have some of them. And God gives those gifts to us so that we can put them to use for his church and his kingdom to his glory. So there are gifts in Scripture But then there's our calling in Scripture. And while our gifts are different from Christian to Christian, our calling as Christians is the same. And what is that? What's our calling? Well, probably the best definition that I've heard of Christian calling uh, is this. Your calling as a Christian is simply to live faithfully to God wherever you are. Your calling as a Christian is simply to live faithfully to God wherever you are. In other words, your calling is to live as a Christian in whatever circumstance or whatever situation you happen to find yourself. So if you're a student, your calling is to live as a Christian at school. If you're employed, it's to live as a Christian at work. If you have friends, it's to live as a Christian in your friend group. If you live in a neighborhood, it's to live as a Christian in your neighborhood, and so on and so forth. In whatever situation or circumstance you find yourself, our calling as Christians is simply to be faithful to God and to live out our faith there. Now that's kind of broad, right? It encompasses a lot of things, but that doesn't mean we don't know what that looks like. The fruit of the Spirit, for instance, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those fruit are part of our calling. We are called to live those things out, to embody them in our lives. Same thing with things like generosity, humility, justice, caring for the poor, and more. There are so many different aspects that are part of our calling as Christians. And one of them, I would say, is evangelism. Evangelism is part of our calling. What that means, I think at least, is that evangelism isn't really a choice. It's not something or or an aspect of our faith that we get to look at and say, well, you know, I just don't really feel like I'm supposed to be doing evangelism uh, because it's not a gift. It's part of our calling. Some of us certainly might be better at it than others, but it's something that we are all called to do. 
I'll tell you a little story about that. During um, our last year in seminary, one of my friends went to interview at a church that he was considering, and they were considering him, and so it was part of the search process. And so he goes to this interview, and one of the members at one point of the search team asked him a question, said, you know, if you accept the call here, if we offer a call to you and you accept the call here and you come here to our church, what's your, like, plan for evangelism? And he just kind of thought about it for a second, and then he looked at the search team, and he said, you. Because if you call me, as your pastor, my job will be to preach and to teach, to form and disciple, to shape all of you as followers in such a way that you'll be the ones doing evangelism in this community, not me. It's kind of a bold move in a job interview, right? But, uh, but he got the call, so I guess it worked. Um, the point is evangelism isn't just for the experts. It's not just for church planters or pastors or missionaries or Christian school teachers or people who know a lot of theology. It's part of our calling as Christians, and so it's something that all of us need to see ourselves as being called to. Bad assumption number two, you need a program for evangelism. Uh, to be honest, this approach used to work. We've had a lot of programs for evangelism over the years, right? Big tent revivals, um, uh, evangelism explosion, the Alpha program, which we used to do here at Ivanrest, door-to-door evangelism. Programs like those used to bear a lot of fruit. But I'm becoming more and more convinced in our post-Christian culture that programs like those, even if they used to work, aren't going to work anymore. And to understand why, we need to talk a little bit about what I mean when I keep saying that our culture is post-Christian. You see, human cultures typically go through three main stages when it comes to their relationship with the Christian faith. The first is what's called a pre-Christian culture. Pre-Christian cultures are cultures that have never heard about Jesus before. That's why we call them pre-Christian cultures, because they are pre-Christ. They've never heard about Jesus. An example would be Western Europe before Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire. That's the last time that our culture, Western culture, was a pre-Christian culture. After a Christian culture gets evangelized and converted, though, it becomes a Christian culture. It's a culture where while some people might not believe, most people do. Most people in a Christianized culture have heard the gospel and believe it to one extent or another. Think of Western Europe, for instance, for about a thousand years after it was converted until the beginning of the Enlightenment. That was a culture where the Christian faith was deeply embedded. It was a Christianized culture. A post-Christian culture, then, is a culture where the Christian foundation has started to erode. It's a culture that used to be Christian, but now has started to reject the Christian faith. It's post-Christ. People in a post-Christian culture aren't Christians anymore, not because they haven't heard the gospel, but because they have, and they've rejected it. They no longer believe it's valid. They no longer believe it's real. Think, for instance, of Europe today, where the Christian faith is largely cultural and historical but most people there don't believe it in any sort of meaningful way anymore. Most churches in Europe are museums now rather than places of worship. Well, that's where our culture is heading to. We are becoming, pretty quickly, a post-Christian culture, and that just creates challenges for evangelism. For instance, you know what inoculation is? Vaccination? Vaccination? 
It's where you're given just a bit of the disease, just enough of a disease so that you'll become immune to it, right? Well, that, my friends, is what has happened in our culture. People have become immune to the gospel. They've heard it, or at least some version of it. They've had just a bit of the gospel, just enough that now they are inoculated against it. They are immune to it. And so when you or I go to share the gospel with them, they have sort of a thought that immediately pops up in their mind. Oh yeah, Christianity, I know all about that. Been there, done that, no thank you. They're not interested. They reject the gospel because they've been inoculated to it. What that means is that the evangelistic programs of the past, they're not going to work anymore. They're not going to work because most of them were designed for a previous type of culture. They were designed for a Christianized culture. Tim Keller talks about this all the time. He says the reason why revival used to work is because in the era of revivals, you could reasonably expect that most people to one degree or another were Christians. Revivalists weren't actually evangelists the same way because all they had to do was get up in front of a people who maybe sort of kind of had some degree of a Christian faith and jolt it back to life, wag their finger at them and say, you need to do what you know. But that's not where people are at anymore. Most people don't have that faith under the surface anymore to just sort of jolt back to life. So no one's showing up to a big tent revival anymore. Most people aren't gonna show up at a church for the Alpha program. No one's going to open their home to us as we go door to door. No one's going to do that because they think they already know what we're offering and they've rejected it already. They don't want it. It's a non-starter. So what do we do? Well, instead of programs, I'm fast becoming convinced that the only approach that's going to work for evangelism anymore in our culture these days is what's called relational evangelism. Put simply, people are only going to listen to us talk about the gospel if they're willing to listen to us talk about other stuff too. And what I mean by that is that as Christians, we need to realize that our mission field isn't going door to door in the neighborhood behind church or handing out tracts or putting up billboards along the highway or paying millions of dollars to have an advertisement in the Super Bowl like going to happen later on today. Have you seen the He Gets Us ad campaign? They bought a slot in the Super Bowl, apparently, okay? That's not what's going to work. Instead, we need to see our primary mission field these days as Christians in our personal relationships, the people we already know and care about, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people at our kids' soccer games, our friends, our family members, all the unbelieving people that we already have a relationship with. People aren't going to listen to us talk about Jesus these days unless they have a relationship with us. But if they have a relationship with us, they just might. Bad assumption number three, evangelism happens in one sitting. Again, this used to work. It used to work to sit someone down, take them through the four spiritual laws or creation, fall, redemption, new creation, or God, man, sin, Christ, faith, have them pray the sinner's prayer and convert them. It was easy. You got another notch on your evangelism conversion belt, okay? But that's not how it works these days anymore. Again, that used to work because people had that Christian foundation that I was talking about. That's what happens when you live in a Christian culture. When everyone else is a Christian around you, you become kind of, sort of, a Christian by osmosis. You develop a Christian worldview. You understand morality and ethics through a Christian framework. You have a Christian conscience, all that sort of stuff. It's all there under the surface, just waiting for someone to come along and sort of lay it out for you and jolt your faith to life. But that's not the case anymore. 
Because our culture has so quickly become post-Christian, fewer and fewer people are growing up with, as cultural Christians with sort of that subterranean Christian belief under the surface. And so it doesn't work to try to jolt their faith to life because there's nothing there to jolt to life in the first place. I have a friend who uh, did not grow up in a Christian family and really has no idea what I do for a living. Like, why would anyone, like, honestly, their thought of me is like, why would anyone want to come and listen to you? They just, they don't understand even what the church looks like. They don't understand anything about Christian belief. And it's such an interesting thing to me because most of the time I spend with all, with people like you who do have a Christian faith. But when you start to get outside circles like this, you realize a lot of people don't have any foundation or background to the faith anymore. And so evangelism needs to look different. We can't bring life to, uh, faith to life in people over just a coffee or two anymore. Instead, we have to build that entire structure of Christian thought and worldview and belief from the ground up, and that takes time. And so one thing that we need to understand about evangelism in 21st century America these days is that it is a, marath it is a marathon, not a sprint. We need to realize that we're not going to be able to sit people down, share the gospel, and see them convert to Christ right there in that one interaction. Instead, it's going to take time. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take ongoing relationships with the people we're trying to evangelize. Evangelism is no longer for the quick fix, faint of heart. Instead, it's for the faithful Faithful believers who are willing to faithfully stick with those they're evangelizing for the long haul, maybe even for an entire lifetime. Think about that. You might put in time your entire life trying to evangelize someone and bring them to faith and never see it happen. You might die before they convert, and maybe they will after you die. Are we willing to put in that kind of effort for something that we might never see? Okay, so if those are the bad assumptions we need to stop making when it comes to evangelism, that it's for the experts, that we need a program, that we can get it done in a sitting or two, if those are the things we shouldn't be doing, then what should we be doing? I'm glad you asked. Uh, three hopefully brief pieces of advice. First, play the long game. Uh, building off what we just said about successful evangelism not happening in one sitting, play the long game. Realize that we are in it for the long haul with someone. As long as you are both still alive, you and the person you're evangelizing, you still have time. As long as the relationship lasts, you can keep slowly, steadily trying to bring someone to faith. I think about this often with a friend of mine who walked away from the faith a few years ago. Uh, when he first made that decision, I felt like every conversation, every coffee, every interaction we had had to somehow get to an in-depth conversation about Jesus and the gospel and the Christian faith so that I could reconvert him. And eventually, I realized, though, that was more about me and what I wanted than it even was about him or his salvation. I cared more about being the person who could say, yeah, I brought him back to the faith than I actually cared about him or his faith. And so I actually ended up telling him that and confessing it to him and apologizing for that. And he forgave me. And then with the pressure off, we were able to go back just to being friends. We still talk about faith from time to time, and no, he hasn't come back to the faith yet, but I don't feel pressure to reconvert him anymore. Instead, 
I've got the rest of our relationship, as long as we're both still alive, to keep working on him slowly but surely. So it doesn't need to happen tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. I'm playing the long game. I recently heard a story about that from another pastor. Uh, 20 years ago, he got to know a guy in the neighborhood uh, where he pastored. And uh, every day, this guy would walk down to the local convenience store where he would buy a fifth of alcohol. On his walk back home, uh, he would normally have it gone by the time he got to the church, which was about halfway. And so as a result, this pastor would often find him passed out in the parking lot of their church during the winter in a snowbank next to the church building, and he would help him to his feet and walk him the rest of the way back home. And so as a result, this pastor got to know him. He ended up spending some time at his house. He got to know his friends, many of whom were fellow alcoholics and, and drug dealers. And so over the years, this pastor was there as a presence in his life. He was there at his house when fights broke out, when the police showed up, even when this guy that he'd been working with was arrested and sent to jail. Eventually, after his last stint in prison about seven years ago, this guy was able to kick his alcohol habit, and he's stayed mostly sober ever since. And their relationship, this pastor and this guy, which started out simply as the pastor helping a drunk neighbor get home, has actually become a friendship. I thought that he needed me when I first started helping him, the pastor said. Turns out, though, I needed him, and he's actually become one of my best friends. I heard this whole story uh, about a month ago, and a month before that, the pastor said his friend told him one day, you know, because of the way you've treated me these past 20 years, I think it's safe to say I've become a Christian. 20 years. 20 years of faithful, loving, committed presence in someone's life. That's the long game. And it doesn't always end with a conversion. Not every story is nice, neat, and tidy, but some are, and some do end with a conversion. And if we're willing to put in the time, the work, and the relational investment in someone, we just might get to be part of one of those stories. Second, start on the other person's level. So often when we evangelize uh, people, we start where we want to start as Christians. We might ask a, a question or two about the other person's thoughts, their belief, their worldview, but pretty soon we're off to the races trying to convince them of what we think and what we believe. Let me just ask you, have you ever been part of a conversation like that? Where somebody asks you like a token question or two, but you can tell that they're really just asking so that then they can talk all about what they want to talk about, right? How fun was that conversation? Did you enjoy that? Is that somebody that you want to spend a lot of time with or, or talk with again? Probably not, right? We've all been there. And yet that's what we do often as Christians, isn't it? We meet somebody who doesn't believe the same stuff as us and we feign interest in them so that then we can tell them what we think and what we believe and it's not going to work. You see, if we're going to evangelize people well, we need to start where they are. Rather than rushing ahead and skipping all the steps to what we think and what we believe, we need to take the time to understand what they think and what they believe first. That's the irony. Talking about the gospel these days starts with not talking at all. It starts with listening. For two reasons. First, people will only listen to us talk about our faith in Jesus if they trust us. It's just that simple. If people don't trust us, they're not going to listen to us. And how do we get people to trust us? 
we listen to them. Second, though, that's also the only way that we're going to discover the touch points for the gospel in people's lives. You see, there are multiple ways to share the gospel with someone. And the way that you figure out what those are is by spending time with them and listening to them. We need to listen to their concerns, their perspectives, their fears, their joys, their values, and then we will know the ways in which their hearts ache for the gospel and be able to find the doorways into sharing it with them. A quick story about that. A couple years ago, I was with a friend in downtown Milwaukee. Uh, we were walking to a restaurant for lunch when a young woman stopped us. Uh, she wanted us to sign a pro-abortion petition. And my friend, who happens to be really good at evangelism, took the lead in the conversation. He said to her, well, my friend Brandon here and I were both Christian pastors, so we probably don't agree with whatever it is you want us to sign. Um, I'm just kind of curious. Do you mind telling us uh, what you're doing out here today and, and what this petition is all about? And so for the next couple minutes, she told us why she was out there and what she was trying to do, and we simply listened. After she'd shared what she was doing with us, my friend started to ask some follow-up questions, and as part of that, she told us that she was a Muslim. And my friend was curious, and he said, oh, what mosque do you attend? I know some of the imams around here. And she said, well, actually, I don't really attend a mosque anymore because uh, I'm, I'm not actually really a practicing Muslim anymore either. And my friend asked her why. And she said, well, I, I can't read Arabic. Now, just for those of you who don't know, Arabic is the language of the Quran, which is the holy book of Islam. But Muslims uh, believe that it's not just the Quran that's holy, it's the language, too. And so Muslims believe that the only way to really read the Quran is in Arabic. If you're reading a translation, like an English translation of the Quran, most faithful Muslims would tell you you're not actually reading the real Quran. You have to read it in Arabic. And if you can't read the real Quran in Arabic, then you're probably what most really practicing Muslims will say is you're not a real Muslim. Well, that was the doorway into the gospel for my friend. He said to her, you see, that's the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ. As Christians, we don't believe that God has only one sacred language that we need to learn in order to get to know him. Instead, we believe that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has actually taken on our languages, our culture, come down to live with us in our world so that we can have a relationship with him. He came to us rather than making us learn some language to go to him. Now, the conversation ended pretty quickly after that. <laughs> uh, but it made a big impression on me because my friend didn't launch right in with, well, I don't agree with your petition, or Islam is a false religion, or let me tell you about Jesus. That wasn't the first thing he did. Instead, he asked questions. He was curious. He listened to her. And then he found the doorway into the gospel from what she was saying rather than what he wanted to. Now, ideally, that would have been part of an ongoing conversation where he could have continued to get to know her and talk with her more over the course of a relationship, but you get the point. When it comes to evangelism, we need to start not where we are, but where the other person is. We listen, we ask questions for a long, long time over multiple interactions and get to know people. That's how we build trust, and that's how we open doorways to share the gospel with people these days, not by forcing our way in. Third, remember that success in evangelism is ultimately up to God. Just think about our text again, okay? Jonah's message in Nineveh 
was just about the most lackluster gospel presentation I've ever seen. He only does a third of the job. He proclaims half the message. It's all judgment, no grace. And he doesn't even mention God. That's not very great evangelism. And yet look what God does with that. He uses Jonah's message to bring the entire city of Nineveh to repentance. I don't know about you, but I find incredible comfort in that because it is comforting to know that despite my best or worst efforts, it's ultimately God who does the work of transformation in the hearts of those I'm evangelizing. That doesn't mean, like Jonah, that we should intentionally do a bad job or not care about how we go about evangelism. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that we can take the pressure off ourselves. We don't need to walk into interactions with unbelievers and think, I've got to have the perfect words. I've got to say just the right thing. I've got to be the one to do it because we are not the ones who do it. It is God through his Holy Spirit. And whoever we're evangelizing, we can trust his work in that person's life more than our own. Which brings us to the gospel this morning. Because that last part about evangelism being up to God, that is true for all of us. Salvation is a gift. Faith is a gift. Belief is a gift. None of us deserve it, and if it was up to us, none of us would have it. Whether we've been Christians all our lives or only a little while, or maybe we're here checking out church for the very first time, none of us deserve God's love. Like the Ninevites, our evil, our violence, our sin has estranged us not only from each other, but from God. And yet what has God done? Through his son, Jesus Christ, he has relented. He has chosen not to bring on us the destruction that our sins deserve. He has chosen to turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Instead, in grace, mercy, and forgiveness, he offers us life. Life the way that he intended when he created us. Life with each other. Life with him. As we said at the beginning of this sermon, that's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation. And on that note, let me end with a story. A couple years ago, I was talking with a friend. This friend isn't a believer. Uh, she's not hostile to the Christian faith or anything. She just didn't grow up with the Christian faith. And so uh, there's a lot about the Christian faith that she doesn't understand. And one of those things is evangelism. See, my friend uh, is friends with some other religious people and some other religious traditions. Uh, she's friends with a couple of Muslims. One of her closest friends is actually a Jewish rabbi. And so she's correctly observed over the years that people in other religions don't really evangelize. And so she asked me about that. Why do Christians? Like, she kind of thinks it's a little annoying. <laughs> she's like, why do Christians feel the need to tell other people what they believe? No one else does that. Why do Christians evangelize people? Why do they try to convince other people and convert them to their religion? And I'll be honest, my response didn't sound nearly as good back then as it's about to now because I've had time to write it out. <laughs> but in essence, what I said was, well, Christians evangelize because the Christian faith actually isn't like other religions. Other religions are primarily about actions. They're about doing the right things so that you can have the right kind of relationship with God so that when you die, you get to go to the right place. 
But the Christian faith isn't like that. The gospel isn't first and foremost about actions. Our actions as Christians matter, but they flow out of the gospel. And what the gospel primarily is, is news. It's good news. It's the good news that through Jesus Christ, God is reconciling his creation back to himself, renewing his world and offering grace and forgiveness to all who believe. And when you have news like that, news that talks about the goodness and renewing of all of creation, you just can't help but share it. My friends, that's the news that we have. It's the news we have in Jesus Christ, and it's the, good, it's the news that we have been called to share with all those we can. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, all of us are here this morning because you have done something in our lives. Either we've been Christians all our lives and you have used a whole bunch of different methods and influences and people over the years to keep us firm believers. Through your Holy Spirit, you, you, you've used parents or teachers or churches or schools or mentors or friends. Or we're here because you're doing something in our hearts now or we're here because at some point along the way when we were walking far from you, you used something to bring us into relationship with you. But our salvation is a gift. It is all of you. It is all from you. Help us to be bold enough to share the good news of our salvation with others. 